I have what is known as pitch memory. It's not something you need to be a bell tuner. It's just useful. In the days when I used to use tuning forks, it did enable me to pick up a bell, tap the bell and say, oh, yes, the hum is around 300 hertz. Hi, welcome to the Fun with Bells podcast, where I, Kathy Booth, interview novices and some of the most famous ringers in the world as they reveal the mysteries of this heard but often hidden art. My guest today is Nigel Taylor, who worked at the Whitechapel Bell Foundry for 40 years from 1976 until it closed in 2017. He was managing all aspects of making, casting and tuning bells for the last 20 years. Nigel has been ringing bells since he was 11. Nigel, first of all, I want to ask you about the Whitechapel. Mm -hmm. What's happening with that at the moment? I can't give you a straight answer to that. Obviously, there's Raycliffe LLP are the present owners of the building, and their proposal is to convert it into a boutique hotel. There is large-scale local opposition not just actually not just within Tower Hamlets, but outside Tower Hamlets to this scheme. And there was a public meeting held at the local East London Mosque last night, which I attended. And uh, there were a lot of some emotive comments, but there were a lot of comments about this scheme. They don't want they clearly don't want this boutique hotel. And the mosque, of course, is its neighbour. And they seem very, very keen on the idea of reopening the foundry as a foundry, which is the counter proposal which has been made and which I am involved with. The plan is to restore the building and reopen it as a foundry, which make art wakes, art castings and bells. So it was closed before. What makes you think that it would be a success if you opened this again as a foundry? The thing about its demise is that the the market was buoyant, but it lost its share of the market. But this time round, we're not proposing just to make bells. We're also proposing to make art castings. And that's big business. Uh, most of the founders that deal with art castings have year or more work. But the same applies with the bell industry. The bell tailors, the bell founders, and the bell hanging companies are all reporting more than a year's work. They're all overloaded with work. Uh, and the same thing is applying with the art foundry industry. So we think we can make a success of the foundry as a multi-purpose foundry. I see. And when you say art castings, is that sort of sculptures? Yes. So what what's happened to the people and skills since the Whitechapel closed? Well, most of them have moved on. Um, some have remained in the bell industry, but only a handful. There's two bell hangers. There's another bell tuner. And one of the uh, former handbell staff has set up his own little business making handbells. He doesn't actually produce the castings. He buys them from a, local, a foundry down near Dartford. Uh, he buys the castings and then he machines them and fits them. And so that's continued. But most of the staff have, di have dispersed and they're working in other industries. Turning to tuning bells, how do you tune a bell? Well, with a new bell, you have the luxury of designing the bell to suit your own requirements. So you produce a tuned profile to which you add some as a tuning tolerance. And whilst many people say to me, why can't you simply cast a maiden bell? Well, the fact is, with the best will in the world, you will not always get exactly the same result. There are too many variables. There's the metal composition and the 
the temperature in which you melt the metal and pour the metal. The, closing the two molds together, you'll get slight variations. So you cannot always guarantee the same result. So, And in any case, many of us believe that it's better to remove at least some of the inside skin off the casting because it produces a more resonant bell. So we design a bell with a tuning tolerance, and then we machine off that excess tolerance and put the bell in tune with itself. But with old bells, of course, it's a, it's a completely different ball game because you're dealing with what was produced two, three hundred years ago. And, off, and often the profile, of course, is totally incorrect. So the harmonic structure is wrong. And it's a question of what you can do with that harmonic structure to put, put the bell in tune. So putting a bell in tune is a matter of scraping off parts of the bell. Yes. Yes. And how do you know it's in tune? Is it, do you have perfect pitch? I have what is known as pitch memory. It's not, uh, it's not something you need to be a bell tuner. It's just useful. In the days when I used to use tuning forks, it did enable me to pick up a bell, tap the bell and say, oh, yes, the hum is around 300 hertz. So I'd, I'd get out the tray of forks around the 300 hertz figure and then of course i was very very close and i could do that with all the partial tones but you don't have to be able to do that it just speeds the job up but nowadays of course we have all sorts of sophisticated equipment to test bells including computer programs so you just tap the bell a few times and it gives you all you need to know about the the bell's state its partial tone structure what it doesn't tell you is where to cut the bell and how much to cut. That's the experience bit. But, of course, you stick the bell on a, a vertical boring machine and you machine away the inside surface, and cutting in different places to put these different partial tones in tune. And we now have the additional dimension of cutting on the outside with old bells, particularly between the lip and the sound bow, in order to improve the partial tone relationship. And you talk about harmonics. Some people might not know what harmonics are. Could you explain? Yes, that? I will. Because strictly speaking, bells are enharmonic. In other words, they don't, they don't have a natural harmonic structure like an organ pipe or a piano string. They are enharmonic. So you can vary the harmonic structure according to the shape of the bell. So strictly speaking, they're, they're not harmonics. We talk about harmonic tuning, but strictly speaking, they are partial tones. And it's our job as a tuner to put those partial tones in tune. You design the bell so that the partial tones are more or less in tune and then corrective tuning to put them accurately in tune. When we say partial tones and things, we're talking about the fact that the bell gives off more than one note. Oh, yes, it produces many different notes. There are five principal partial tones, and they are the hum note. That's the lowest note. Then an octave above is what we would call the fundamental or prime or second partial. Above that is a minor third. Not a major third. Only a few bells have a major third. There's a minor third, a perfect fifth, and above that is what we call the nominal or naming note. But what you actually hear in the street equates to more or less half the nominal. It's what we call the missing fundamental, because you cannot measure it, but you can hear it. But that really determines the strike note of the bell. And then bells come in sets, so those strike notes they will be a certain number of tones apart? Yes, they will. The simplest way to describe it is if you take a bell that's middle C, it would weigh about two tons. It would be about five feet in diameter, whatever that is in, in metric. You'd have to convert that yourself because I, I think in bells in feet and inches, um, about five feet in diameter, and you would have its, its fundamental note, which is C, 
an octave below that is C, the hum note, an octave above that is C, the nominal. So three Cs, two octaves apart, and above the strike note, you've got the minor third, which is E flat, and a perfect fifth, which is G. So they're the principal tones. Above that, there are umpteen different partial tones. And the larger the bell, the more of them become audible to the human ear. Why do modern bells sound different? To old bells? Be- mm-hmm. Oh, well, they're simply because they're in tune. Most old bells have a sharp hum note and a flat prime. Whereas in a modern bell, the, the hum note is an octave below the strike note and the prime is in tune. So that's the real difference. Most old bells have sharp hum notes and it produces what in musical terms would be an unresolved sound. Because the hum note is sharp, you'll notice it particularly with an old style ring when you're ringing them and you set them at the end. When the tenor strikes just before the bell set, you find yourself sort of so almost sort of up in the air. Because it doesn't have an octave hum, the hum note is sharp, you're sort of left in sort of no man's land. Uh, um, and musicians would certainly understand what I was talking about. It's an unresolved sound. Whereas with an octave hum, of course, you do have a resolution because it's in tune with the strike note. So when the tenor bell sounds, when you set the bells, you know that you've finished, so to speak. You feel that it has finished. And what's the largest bell that you've ever tuned? The largest bell that I've ever tuned manually myself was the Anzac bell, which weighed about seven tonnes as cast. And I tuned that in Australia last year. I flew out to Australia and I spent three weeks out there. It was designed uh, by myself and uh, the equipment was designed by the draftsman the of the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. So it's a Whitechapel-shaped equipment, if you like, the headstock and the frame and the clapper and so on. Uh, I designed the profile and a, a foundry called Veeam, a big foundry. They make all sorts of different castings out in Australia. They cast the bell and then it was uh, delivered to a large machine shop which had a, a big vertical boring machine and I tuned the bell on there. And the Anzac bell, that that sounds like it's quite significant. What's the significance of it? Oh, for the centenary at the end of the First World War. And I think the significance of it was that it was rung on the 11th of November in uh, 2018, on the centenary for the end of the war. I see. And where is it based in Australia? It's, it hangs in uh, the Swan Tower in Perth, above the Ring of Sixteen. I think they installed a protective cage, so if the clapper falls out, it doesn't damage the bells below. But there's a ring of 16 bells at the Swan Tower in Perth, and the Anzac bell hangs above the ring of, ring of bells. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about to do with tuning bells? Oh, lots of things, but you probably don't want to get too technical. <laughs> okay, go on. Give me a little bit of technical. <laughs> well, in the last few years, as I mentioned earlier we added this extra dimension of tuning with old bells say they tend to have sharp hums and flat primes and when you cut the bell internally you can flatten the hum but you are also continuing to flatten the prime Um, so you you have what is called a limited degree of improvement and of course some old bells, the hum note is very sharp and it involves cutting the bell in the waist. Obviously, there's a limited thickness available. So if you're aiming to, for an octave hum, um, even if you achieve it, the bell might finish very, very thin in the waist. And although it looks good on paper, 
actually it sounds terrible because the bell is too thin in the waist and the partial tone structure, although that look is intact, the amplitudes and the decay times of the different partial tones is heavily disrupted by the fact that you've so radically altered the internal profile. So there's a limit to what you can do with an old bell by cutting it internally. But if you start cutting externally, particularly say from the lip to the sound bow, you're actually correcting the shape because generally speaking, old bells are narrow-waisted, which is why they have a sharp hum. And if you cut the outside of the bell, you're correcting the shape. So the hum comes down and the prime goes up. So it does exactly what you want it to do. You have much better control. And it also means you're removing metal, which is effectively excess metal, because you're not making the bell thinner. So you can quite dramatically improve an old bell simply by cutting the outside. And then you finish off on the inside to do any additional corrective tuning. So it is now possible to tune an old ring of bells so that they sound almost, not as good, but almost as good as a modern ring. They won't quite have the same, if you like, clarity. They will have a different character. They will still certainly have, some people might argue, more character because they're old bells that have been tuned. So technically speaking, they're not as good as a, an old, as a new ring of bells, but they sound dramatically better than they did before. So what's the biggest challenge you've had when tuning a bell? It's old bells, not new bells, because say with new bells, you design them to suit. So it's certainly old bells and generally bells, often by warners. Um, warner bells can be quite difficult to tackle because the partial tones are so dramatically out of tune, um, way out of tune. So there are two options, really. You can do fairly minimal corrective tuning to put the strike notes in tune and make the hums a bit flatter, or you go for the outside tuning option where you can dramatically improve the bells. And uh, there was a ring of bells recently, which I tuned at Whites of Appleton, along with Mark Walker, who works there, and he's learning to tune. And for Tanfield, they're an 1890 Warner 8, and Tonally, they certainly weren't very nice bells. The tenor was quite a respectable bell, but the seventh and the fifth in particular were terrible. And we have succeeded with quite a lot of work, but we've succeeded in producing what we believe is a very nice ring of bells. How long does it normally take to tune a, a bell? Oh, it could be anything from three hours to several days. I mean, the Anzac bell took me four and a half, five days. So quite several days, a small bell might only take me three hours. Do you work on hand bells as well as, or just tower bells? No, I've never, that's the one thing I never did. Never, I never really got involved with hand bells. I did tune a few sets of clock bells, but I never tuned hand bells, never got involved. This is a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Association of Ringing Teachers, ART. You can find out more at bellringing.org where there are resources to support your ringing, to find out how to learn to ring or to learn to teach. Now back to the episode. So you've concentrated on tower bells and as you say, clock bells. I did. I did. And I was far more interested in tower bells because you tune so many more different notes. Handbells, generally speaking, you're only tuning two notes. There are more partial tones in handbells that you can tune, especially in larger ones. But generally speaking, it was only two notes and it didn't really appeal to me. I was far more interested in tuning at least five. (laughs) (laughs) Much more of a challenge. Yes. Different kind of challenge. Yes. 
Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now? Since the foundry closed in June 2017, I've been working as an independent consultant. No sooner had the, it had been announced that the foundry was closing than Whites of Appleton contacted me and said, if we bought a vertical boring machine, would you tune bells for us and teach us how to tune? And similarly, Nicholson Engineering in Bridport did exactly the same thing, phoned up and said, um, if we obtained a tuning machine, would you teach us to tune? And so that's what I'm doing. White's bought a boring machine and Nicholson's bought the smallest machine from Whitechapel, which is the 1907 Gillett and Johnston machine, which tuned bells up to just over half a tonne. And they've also bought the large machine that was installed for the Bicentennial Bell in 1975 stroke six. And at the moment, that, that machine is being put together because they've got some largest bells to tune. And at both places, I'm teaching people how to tune bells. So that's two of the things I'm doing. Uh, so I act as an independent consultant. So people just write to me asking for advice about what to do with their bells, what might be the best course of action to take. And I'm also working with the Wesley Group. Similarly, um, Tom Wesley, the Wesley Group, uh, interviewed me. He said, um, if we made bells, uh, would you design them for us and, and act as a supervisor? So I work as an independent consultant with Wesley Group. I design the profiles. I also arrange the instructions with the client. And from time to time, I pop up there just to, just to make sure everything's going smoothly. But of course, they are using modern techniques. They, although they have Whitechapel's molding equipment, it's all sitting in the, in the yard, gradually rusting away. None of it's used. Um, we decided at a fairly early stage that they are used to using modern molding and casting techniques. So the best thing to do would be to adhere to them because then their move from casting parts to submarines and art casting and so on would be quite seamless. And that's how it's proved to be. Right. Is, is there any value in the moulds and whatever that, that have come from Whitechapel that are sitting there not doing anything? Not really. Unless another company wanted to set up as a bell foundry and wanted to buy all that equipment, it's, it's only real value now is a scrap. Is that because bells can be made another way now yes exactly yes tailors still make their bells in loam at least they do the copes in loam and i think they use uh, resin bonded sand for their cores so they they've made a move towards mo modern technology but they still like to make their copes in loam but with wesley's they, it would have made for them it would have been a retrograde step something they haven't done for over 40 years using loam and it also meant you having one section of the foundry solely for the purpose of making bells because you cannot mix loam uh, which is uh, chiefly sand and clay um, you cannot mix that medium with the modern mediums of uh, resin bonded and gas set sands the two just don't mix so you would have had to have had a completely separate section just to make bells as well as the fact that as nobody's made loam molds up there for years i would have had to have taught them and although we've discussed making small bells in loam for the apprentices, to date, we've simply used modern molding techniques. So instead of strickling using a, a molding template and using a cast iron flask to make the outer mold and building the core with the curved bricks, instead, it's a pattern. And on that pattern is stuck silicon letters and decorations. And the whole thing's rammed up with sand. And then the mold is the, the pattern is removed the two molds are put back together and of course they sit for a, a guttering system and cast the bell and that's that's the way they like to do it making them with the pattern could you explain that 
Again. I design a profile and that goes off to the pattern shop. They turn, they use a, a special five axis machine which carves out the exact shape of that drawing that I produce as a complete pattern. So it looks like a bell. It's just made in a different material. And onto that pattern, we then attach the letters and decoration, and we use silicon for that. The, the ancients used wax, but we use silicon. We attach any inscription and decoration that's required. And then once the pattern is complete, you ram it all up with sand. Uh, you do the outside mold, the inside mold, and then you separate the two, remove the pattern, put the two molds back together, form a guttering system to run the casting, and then melt your metal and pour it in. How many bells of Westies cast now? About 50. It includes some small bells. There's a carillon job. It's adding to an existing carillon. So there's been quite a number of smallish bells, uh, sort of six, seven inches and up to about 16 inches, and, uh, and with the possibility of an, a larger bell to add to the carillon as well. And there's been a complete change ringing peel of eight and several augmentations, uh, augmenting sixes to eight and so on. The first bell, of course, was the sharp second for Worcester Cathedral. That was the first bell that Wesley supplied. And the complete set that you uh, supplied, where was that for? Lindfield in Sussex. They're a new ring of eight with a tenor weighing just over nine and a half hundred weights in, in the key of G sharp. Nice handy ring of eight. And the ringers and uh, other people who have heard and, and rung on them are, uh, well, they're making very, very complimentary remarks. They, they seem to be uh, a very popular ring of bells. I'm very, very pleased with the result. Nigel, could you tell me a little bit about your ringing career? Yes, my ringing career started off really when I was a small boy. My family comes from Warwick, lived in Warwick for centuries. My family were, were Normans who settled in Warwick in the 12th century. And as a small boy, I used to listen to the bells at St. Nicholas Warwick, which was just down the road from my, my grandparents' house. I remember listening to them on Sunday mornings when we were staying there for the weekend, and sometimes the Ring of Ten at St. Mary's. So I had an interest in bells from an early age. My local village in Oxfordshire, the bells hadn't been rung for several years, and in 1969 they were rehung. And a friend of mine, a school friend, said, why don't we learn to ring? Because we'd been along, we'd actually seen the bell hangers unloading the bells, and we actually turned up for the, the bell hangers called the tryout when they have a test ring. We stood outside listening. So a few months later, we went up. It was just after Easter in 1970, and uh, met the ringers, and we started learning to ring. Uh, he dropped out of ringing for many years, but came back to it later, I'm pleased to say. He still rings in Oxfordshire. And I started ringing at, in Oxfordshire in 1970, and then... The, the interest in bells sort of grew from there. And eventually I had interviews. I was offered for two different jobs in the civil service. And I thought, well, I'll give the foundry a try just to see how it pans out. And if it doesn't work, I've got the civil service. So I wrote to Douglas Hughes of the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. I had an interview with him. And in the end, I went and worked there. And I worked there for 40 years. In the early days, it was quite a grubby place to work. And quite often I thought, this isn't really for me. I was thinking going into the civil service, but I stuck it out. And over the years, we improved the conditions of the foundry considerably anyway. So it wasn't, you know, it became a better environment to work in. But uh, that's really how it came about. When I was a boy, I used to cycle around the Oxfordshire countryside on my bicycle and knock at rectory doors and say, 
could I have the keys to the tower? And in those days, where there was no health and safety, they would say, at your own risk. And so I'd unlock the, the, the tower door, climb up, go and look at the bells. Sometimes I'd climb up vertical ladders just to go and look at bells. Once I went up this rotting staircase that was creaking and groaning, and all the more so when I opened the hatchway, which was quite heavy, and transferred the loading onto this rotting staircase. But I didn't seem to mind taking the risk, and nobody else did. But that's really where how it all came about. So I moved to London, started working at the foundry, and of course, eventually, I started ringing the College Jews, the Ancient Society of College Jews that rings the bells at St Mary Le Beau and St Paul's and so on. And I rang at St Mary Abbott's Kensington until I moved out of London when I got married in 1983. I'll go on to the last two questions we have here. Okay. Apart from the towers that you regularly ring at, which are your favourite ring of bells and why? Oh this is really difficult. I mean, there are a number of rings of bells that stand out in my mind as being particularly fine. In London, interestingly, St. James Clerkenwell. Um, sadly, they're not rung very often. The church don't seem to appreciate what a fine ring of bells they have there. And also, they've had quite a number of complaints. They're very large louvers and they get complaints because there's a lot of housing nearby. But they are one of my favourite rings of bells. They were cast by Gillis and Johnston at the end of 1928 uh, with a 2500 weight tenor. Quite hard work to ring because there's lots of tower movement, but they are one of my favourite rings of bells. So there's one. That's a ring of eight, Clerkenwell. St Mary Le Beau, uh, one of my favourite rings of 12. I've always enjoyed listening to bow bells. And not just in terms of the fact that they're clear, but the fact that they are musical. They're not just a big ring of 12, they're a musical ring of 12. Some of the large rings of 12 uh, are impressive rather than musical, but bow I regard as impressive and musical. And then the last question I have for you is, what remarkable things have happened to you that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't taken up bell ringing? Oh, well, that's a good question. I don't really know. I've been married twice. Both wives are ringers. I suppose you could say I met uh, I met them both from bell ringing. But I mean, you would tend to meet meet somebody in whatever circle you mix you mix with. What remarkable thing has happened? I can't really answer that. I meet lots of people, of course, but of course you could say that with any kind of niche hobby. Uh, I mean, I'm interested in steam locomotives, and of course you, it's the same there. You you would have meetings and so on where you, you and open days where you meet people you know. I think bell ringing is has an enormous uh, advantage over many other ones because it's not just just a social thing. You ring together as a team, and you know it's not a solo event. You're ringing as a team, and you have to ring as a team, otherwise it just doesn't work properly. And I suppose one of the things I've enjoyed about it is is the teamwork because it was it's always very easy for me to say I don't need any assistance. I can just get on with this on my own. But you can't do that with bell ringing, and I think from my point of view, I've enjoyed that camaraderie and the teamwork aspect of it. So it shapes my personality, if you like. Thank you to my guest, Nigel Taylor, especially for that fascinating insight on tuning bells. More information, photographs and links can be found in our show notes at www funwithbells.com. I'm Cathy Booth. This podcast was put together by a team. Special thanks go to Anne Tansley-Thomas and John Gwynne, 
Leslie Belcher, Sue Hall, Nick Boyd, Rose Nightingale and the Society of Cambridge Youths for the recording of their ringing. There are openings for other roles within the production team. Contact me at funwithbellspodcast at gmail.com if you're interested. If you're in Britain and are interested in learning to ring, then please go to ringingteachers.org or for handbell ringers, hrgb.org.uk. Both websites have links to help you get started. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Fun With Bells. Don't forget to tell others that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's available from any podcast directory or from the website funwithbells.com. Next on Fun With Bells, we'll be talking to Christopher Richmond about his project to record the bells of Norfolk. (laughs) 